One of the <coughs> basic tenets that uh, first attracted me to this practice, to these teachings in this practice, and that continues to be a very lively aspect of it for me still, is the see for yourself teaching. The see for yourself teaching that the Buddha talked about often. That this is a path of inquiry, a path of investigation, a path of discovery that we fully participate in, that we fully experience for ourselves. We discover great jewels, treasures along the way in this see-for-yourself process, this investigation. We take responsibility for ourselves in this process. In a sense, we could say that this practice is about being responsible, being able to respond to life, however it happens within us and around us. The path of responsibility participation, direct involvement. We don't fabricate, we don't manipulate anything. We just pay attention to how it is, how it all comes, how it all goes, how it all is. Giving a clear, fresh attention, even to what we might think is very familiar a clear, fresh attention, what we could call beginner's mind, over and over again. Come see for yourself. Very attractive to some of us. This is a poem by David White. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. When Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, the Buddha's name before he came to be called the Buddha, When he was a young boy, about six years old, 
he attended the spring plowing festival with his a father who was the king in that area at the foot of the Himalayas in what is now known as Nepal. He attended the spring plowing festival with his father, his mother, who was the queen, and all of the other uh, nobles and farmers in the area. Each spring they celebrated by coming together, all together, for this plowing festival. This particular day, when Siddhartha was about six, it said that he was seated very quietly under a, a very sweet-smelling rose apple tree, watching all of this going on, all of these men plowing the earth together. And he was sitting there with a very bright, alert, clear attention that children often give in a situation. He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. He was aware of the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the oxen and the men. And he was aware of the sun continuously flashing and sparkling off the harnesses and off the horns of the oxen. He also saw and felt what seemed like the senseless, endless senseless plodding of the hooves and the cowbells as they rolled on and on and on amidst all of the shrill shouting of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful songs of the birds. And he heard the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured all of the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of mice that were turned up into the, in the plowing, plowed earth freshly plowed earth. All of this quite obvious laboring, some struggling, devouring, suffering, dying, which was endlessly going on beneath and along with the joy and the gaiety and the beauty of this spring festival day, all together, as this boy was sitting beneath this sweet-smelling apple tree, experiencing all of it intuitively, reflecting intuitively on this scene that was going on before him. As he sat there taking all of it in, he suddenly entered into a profound experience of very deep concentration and insight. He entered into an experience of oneness. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was born 
out of this experience of oneness with all that was taking place on that spring plowing festival day. It's said that many years later, as he grew up, the young man, Siddhartha Gautama, in his quest, his search for freedom, for liberation, and after a number of years of very extreme, austere practices that didn't bring him the freedom that he was seeking, although he learned a lot from those practices, it's said that he remembered this scene from his childhood and this profound experience from his childhood. It's said that with this memory, he became filled with energy and assurance, and he resolved to again sit quietly, pay attention, and press forward in deep concentration and mindfulness, deep meditation, until he reached full understanding, until he really understood and reached liberation, freedom. No one told the Buddha these understandings. No one kind of bestowed them upon him. No one touched him and he knew. And he certainly didn't come to these understandings through reading a book. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. And so just as it was for Siddhartha Gautama, it's the same for us, actually. It's really by the power of our own attention, our own mindful awareness, with great interest and taking great interest and with great energy, taking the time to look very deeply at our own experience of body, mind, heart. Taking the time to develop a concentrated clarity of awareness through which we can then see and experience the nature of things. This is really what brings the deepest happiness, the deepest contentment. This is what brings a sense of freedom, of liberation. This is what brings a very deep sense of connection, understanding, and compassion with and for all that lives, including ourselves. This is really our deepest, most expansive human possibility. And it's perfectly natural. It's not something strange. It's not something esoteric. It's not something far away from us. It's perfectly natural and available any moment. One of my teachers, Sayadaw Pandita, 
used to say that um, this practice is about becoming a real human being. Really, that's what it is, about becoming a real human being. It's perfectly natural. We're just being who we are. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. There are a number of definitions of what this practice is. sometimes defined as being the deepest healing that a human being can touch, can know, can receive. It's also talked about being a process of purification, being <coughs> free from suffering. So. What is it that's being healed? What is it that's purified? What is it that's freed from suffering? Our body? Our mind? Our heart? The deepest healing that's possible isn't the body. In a sense, uh, we could say that uh, these bodies are a hopeless case. (laughs) I mean, let's face it, they get old, they get sick, and they die, no matter what we do. I mean, even if we have good health now, we might not tomorrow. If we have bad health today, We might feel well tomorrow, but it's constantly changing, kind of a hopeless case. Although we need to take care of ourselves, we are alive, we are in this world. But it's an illusion, uh, a delusion, uh, to think that we will once and forever heal this body. If we begin to practice and let go of that, know that deeply, because of our direct experience of being in a body, it's a very strong teaching, and it's a very strong piece of freedom. So what is it that's really being healed? It's the mind, the heart. In Asian languages, um, the word for heart and mind is the same word. So I, I often use it interchangeably, or very similar word. In our language, we really pull ourselves apart. Our mind and our heart are separated. 
So bringing, bringing it back together. Again, my, uh, my Burmese teacher, Sado Pandita, used to uh, sit up on the, on the uh, podium and often he would say, uh, most people think that everything begins and ends here and he'd knock himself in the head. And he said, well, but I've been checking for a long time. And he's, he's in his 70s and a, he's been a monk, I think, since he was about seven or eight. He said, I've been checking for a long time and I found out that everything begins and ends here. And he kind of bumped his head. So I haven't been checking as long as him, but I started checking when he said that. <laughs> Seems so. Seems so. So it's, it's the mind, it's the heart that's being healed. And it's through the process of learning to focus the attention, developing a concentrated attention, and through the process also of mindfulness, they're very interrelated, that the healing happens. And that we discover for ourselves through this process, the see for ourselves, these great jewels of wisdom, these treasures through this process of investigation, exploration, And we each find it in our own unique way. Because it has to do with our own process in this life, our own particular predicaments, we could say, our own particular conditioned karmic predicaments that we find, that we investigate, that we find the jewels, the treasures, the wisdom, the understanding. So mindfulness is the medicine for the healing, we could say. Concentration and mindfulness. The medicine for our awakening. In this process of investigation, of discovery, we have the opportunity to understand through our very own direct experience, in our very own body-mind continuum, phenomena, experience, what the, we could say, deeper obstacles or hindrances may be. And they're, in a sense, unique for each of us. In a sense, unique for each of us. We take the opportunity to see the conditioned habits that imprison us, so to say. And though in its very deepest sense we're very much not different from each other, not really very much at all different from each other, in whatever these obstacles are and how they're experienced. And that's one of the things that we discover in this process, that in fact we're not 
very different from each other. That this strong identification that we have of my obstacle, (laughs) whatever it may be, it's not very different from the person sitting in front of you, next to you, behind you. So we begin to discover that we're not separate. We're really not very separate. We're not separate at all. We're not a separate, solid, static something. And this is really uh, a very profound and incredible piece of understanding that we discover along the way. It brings a very deep sense of connection and compassion. As we practice over the course of an eight-day retreat or a lifetime, practice eventually touches all aspects of our life. We begin to see clearly how it is. So we're healing the heart, the mind. And we awaken through this process of concentration and mindfulness. This is the base of our practice. I'd like to explore a little bit more deeply concentration, each of them. First, concentration. This kind of concentration isn't exactly our everyday, ordinary level of concentration. It's actually quite a bit deeper than this. It's the process of gathering in, of developing and gathering together, we could say, all of the energy or the potential energy of mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. I'm sure you've noticed through the day. So we begin to kind of rein the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and begin to focus it in order to see clearly. We're usually pretty scattered. And so when we sit down at a retreat, for instance like this, to do something very simple, seemingly very simple, to be with our breath. And maybe we're with uh, one breath, one inhalation, one exhalation, maybe two, and then the attention is gone, off to the beach, (laughs) to a calm, non-windy place. (laughs) Gone to... Ten years ago, or ten years from now. And sometimes when we're sitting in a group, we look around and we see other people sitting. And we see uh, all these Buddhas around us, calm, perfectly concentrated, blissful, 
tall ones, short ones, round ones, thin ones. Everybody just perfect, except me, mm-hmm. who's looking around and comparing myself and totally not focused. And that's what we think, anyway. <laughs> but uh, if we were in somehow able to... Um, know what was going on in everybody's mind. Like if there was a little speaker in there. It would be so loud in here we'd have to leave the room. Because there's a lot going on in these minds of ours. The mind thinks. It's natural. That's what happens. Thoughts come and go and come and go and come and go. All the time. It's perfectly natural. It's when we're seduced into the thoughts, when we're swept away, when we're caught in them, and we're not aware of this, and when we're very identified, very attached to what's going on in the mind and the body, This is when we lose touch with the immediacy, with the truth of what's actually happening. I mean, what thought have you ever kept for more than a few seconds? And where do they go? Into the black hole of three zillion, trillion, quadrillion thoughts. (sighs) What sensation have you ever kept for more than a few seconds. You can't keep your experience. Not possible. It comes and it goes. We expend an enormous amount of energy trying to hold on, or to get to, or to stop. It all stops anyway, so. But we spend a lot of energy fighting, struggling, push-pull. And so we begin uh, our practice by learning to develop this focus of attention, learning to deepen our concentration, this power, this very uh, tremendous power of mind, this focusing power, so that we, we come back again and again and again just to the present moment. So that all of our energy isn't used up or lost or floating in some kind of a dream or swept away with the various strong energies that move through our body and move through our mind. We just keep coming back to the very simple present so that our energy doesn't get used up in unconscious ways. We practice what I like to call simple presence, breath by breath. Another definition for the practice is it's a training of the mind and a purification. Simple presence, gathering back the power of our mind, returning to this very moment so that we're actually able to see what's going on. There are some wonderful metaphors 
for concentration and mindfulness. I'd like to share just a few of them with you. The bee. The bee following the scent of a flower. It dives towards the flower. And then it stops just above the flower and buzzes above it briefly. Getting to know it, we could say. Then after it knows it, it goes down in, absorbed, drinking the sweet nectar. Another metaphor, a lump of clay on a spinning potter's wheel. And the potter brings both hands to the lump of clay. One hand directly on the clay, holding it there. Contact with the clay, steadying it, centering it, supporting it. Actually, both hands, but one hand then stays. And then the other hand, sustaining contact with the clay, but moving, moving up and down, back and forth. We could say, informing the lump of clay, and at the same time being informed by the lump of clay, as the pot forms. And one more metaphor. A circle. The point of the compass sticking, fixing down into the center. And then the pencil revolving around it. In the process of developing a concentrated awareness, a concentrated mind, we learn to aim, to aim the attention toward whatever the object of attention is. And we'll use the breath as an example. So we aim the mind towards the breath, and then we stick with it and observe it, like the bee buzzing above the flower. And then touching into the center, like the potter's hand as it moves, as it's informed by the clay and is informing the clay as the pot forms. Rubbing up against breath in intimate observation. We bring the attention, the mind, to the breath and place it there, we could say. And then like the compass, we rotate the mind around in the breath until we see it clearly, until we see the whole of it. And this happens because we take an interest. We make the connection and we make some effort. Energy is aroused in this process. Energy is aroused to focus on the breath more clearly, to experience it, really experience it deeply, to see it 
as it moves in and out of the body to see it clearly. And the mind remains very still at that point. The mind is very still, but very alert for that moment with the attention in the in on the inhalation or the exhalation. The power of a focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and it stimulates, or we could say re-stimulates, again and again and again the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment. So it feeds itself. Feeds the focusing and the observing. What we could call mindfulness. Concentration and mindfulness. It feeds itself. And we see breath happening. We see movement or pressure, tightness, fullness, heat or coolness, a lightness or a heaviness, maybe vibration or roughness, smoothness, etc. All these things begin to become very apparent. We are seeing and knowing the process of breathing very intimately, very clearly, very brightly. And this, this will happen. It can happen and it will happen with a diligent practice, an ongoing diligent practice, with any experience that occurs in any and through any of the six sense doors. That's why it's called practice. It takes practice. But we can begin. This will happen. We begin to experience physical and mental phenomena without conceptualization. We begin to experience it directly. To come to know the qualities or the characteristics both the unique individual characteristics of any given experience, any given phenomena, and the common or shared or universal qualities of the constantly changing conditioned phenomena that arises and passes away in this great expanse of our ongoing innate awareness. We see with concentration and mindfulness. And as this deepens, as our concentration deepens with the breath or whatever it is, anything, it just keeps strengthening and growing deeper and deeper. And there's a wonderful thing that happens (laughs) along with seeing clearly. Our mind begins to feel quite open and refreshed. There is a purity, a clarity, and a kind of calm that begins to fill the mind and the body. This power of a concentrated presence. 
then we don't want anything else in that moment. Whatever is happening is just fine. We're seeing it clearly. We're just here, right now. It's enough. We're present with whatever is. So for that moment, or moments, however long it lasts, the mind isn't dispersed. It's just here, present, clear, light, calm. Colors are very bright, for instance. Fresh, sounds are clear. Smells, tastes, very sharp very apparent. And it feeds itself. There's not any In the moment of a clear, concentrated, mindful presence, there's not any aversion to what's happening, even if it's a difficult, say, bodily experience. The presence of being there and seeing it clearly is enough, just enough. As a very pleasant experience, is happening and then disappears. It's okay, because we see it clearly. It's enough. There's not this lingering, yearning for it to stay or come back or try to get it again. It's just enough. It's a moment of freedom. It's an amazing relief. And there's a kind of joy in this, a deep joy. And an abiding interest in staying with it, in staying present. And so now I'd like to, as we've already begun, uh, talk a little bit more deeply about mindfulness, because this leads right to it, and just explore it more specifically. Mindfulness, as I've already spoken of, just this much. Presence with just this. It's a place, we could say, of absolutely believing our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, our mind, in this cultivation of direct present moment experience, present moment awareness. We see the truth, very clear. And sometimes it's so immediately ordinary, ordinarily clear that we hardly can believe it. 
We often want our lives to be more than this moment, whatever it is. More experiences, different experiences, permanent experiences, that this will fulfill us, we think, to suit our fancies, to suit our hopes, our dreams. But mindfulness is just this, just enough, just whatever is. I'd like to offer you a definition of it that I find to be very clear. It's a paying of what we could call a kind of extraordinary attention. A non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. It's not the way we usually relate to our present moment experience. Non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting. It's an orientation to present moment to the present moment that creates an openness, a receptivity, radical receptivity. It's an orientation that makes room for a spaciousness, calmness of heart, of mind. And a relationship that allows clarity, allows real understanding, true understanding, allows insight to arise naturally, to just simply arise, which it inevitably does if we relate to the present moment experience with a true mindfulness. We don't have to do anything to make insight arise. We do have to do something in a sense. We have to relate to the moment with mindfulness. The truth is, isn't anywhere else. It isn't far away. It's not separate. It's just right here, always available to be seen. Every present moment. Nisargadatta Maharaj uh, has a wonderful metaphor. He says that uh, the thinking mind is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind. And the metaphor is, the child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child not the toy. So mindfulness. Not caught with the toy, but watching the process of the experience with the toy. Seeing it clearly. I sometimes... um, think of mindfulness as magic, because it's 
reveals the deepest things, kind of magically it seems. But it's not like the magician's magic at all. The magician's magic is all done with illusion and delusion. It creates an illusion and then pulls us into this delusion. The magic of mindfulness, it takes us right through the illusion, takes us out of delusion, directly into reality. A few years ago, I was uh, teaching a class here in Taos, and um, one of the students <clears throat> came in one evening uh, at the beginning of each class. We spent time just sharing a little bit about our week in relation to, in this case, mindfulness. And she came in one evening and she said that that morning she'd been watering her garden, which she'd done hundreds of times. But she said that morning, suddenly she was there. She was really present watering her garden, and she thought it was the very first time that she'd ever been really present watering her garden. She said it was an amazing experience. And then she went on to say that uh, it's a wonder that the world has survived so long with most of us not really being here most of the time. She had an insight. <laughs> and it's true, the world has survived uh, so long, with most of us not really being here most of the time. But a lot of terrible things have been done when we're not seeing clearly, when we're disconnected from life, when we really aren't here most of the time. So how healthily has the world survived for so long with most of us not really being here most of the time? We have to eat to stay alive and stay healthy. We have to sleep to stay alive and stay healthy. And as one of my Burmese teachers said, we have to meditate to stay alive and stay healthy. I mean, there are plenty of people who stay sort of alive and sort of healthy, who eat and sleep and don't meditate. But why settle for sort of? Why not really wake up and be fully alive, fully healthy in the deepest sense, and really be here appropriately? We have the opportunity in this practice to see the true shape of our own face. We have the opportunity to let go of who we think we are, or who we think we've always been, or who we think we should be, or could be, or we're supposed to be. We have the opportunity to let go of how we think it all should be, or is supposed to be, or shouldn't be, or could be. 
we have the opportunity to really be in what is called beginner's mind. This place of infinite possibility. If we think we know how everything is, if we think we know how everything is or isn't, or is supposed to be, if we really think we're experts, then there's very, very little possibility. If we're beginners over and over and over again, the possibilities are endless, they're boundless. We might begin to see the world then as a mirror. And that it's all a reflection of the mind. As we come to know this more and more deeply, we have then the opportunity to grow in every single moment. Every experience then has the possibility to reveal the truth bringing wisdom, bringing understanding. If we're beginners over and over again in seeing the world as a mirror. And so we pay attention to a whole range of experiences. Things that we normally do very mechanically. Ordinary things. Breathing, walking, eating. We pay attention to things that are pleasant. We pay attention to things that are unpleasant. We pay attention to things that are easy and wonderful to pay attention to. And we pay attention to things that are more difficult to experience and give our attention to. We open to all of it in our practice. All that we can know, no parts left out. We have the opportunity to let go of the myths that we have about ourselves. The various very identified, strong beliefs that we have about ourselves, What we think we're capable of or how we define ourselves, beliefs about our bodies, our mind, beliefs about our emotions. And just simply pay attention to our experience with this beginner's mind. Letting go of the concepts, letting go of the beliefs, and see how it is in this moment, just as it is. It's very simple. It's a very simple practice, but not an easy practice. It can be very difficult sometimes.
many years ago. Um, about, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many now, 36 years ago, <laughs> uh, I gave birth to uh, the first of my children. There were twins. And it was really my first formal teaching in concentration and mindfulness. First formal teaching in insight practice, vipassana. Although it wasn't called that. It was the Lamaze childbirth Mm -hmm. method. But it was a very steep training. A training in being very fully present, awake, aware. Very fully present, awake, aware, in a process that happens in and of itself. And that I was certainly um, deeply involved with. But it was happening anyway, whether I was involved or not, Mm -hmm. mentally. My body was certainly involved. Mm -hmm. The process of this, I'll just share a little bit. Um, We studied about it, and we practiced before the birth actually happened. We practiced over some months before the birth was to happen. Um, And so we would understand the process when it would happen. It helped uh, alleviate unrealistic expectations, helped to alleviate fears, helped to alleviate various fantasies that some of us had. As we came to understand more and more deeply through our study and our practice, this very natural process, the nature of the process of birth, And I really came to understand that fear translates into resistance. I came to understand that as the birth actually began to happen, that any vestiges of fear that were left translated into resistance during this actual birthing, which became painful, tight, resisting a process that was going to happen no matter what, how much I resisted it. It was going to happen. Life happens, you know. (laughs) Not just in giving birth, the actual physical process, but giving birth moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. Life happens. And every resistance we have is a suffering. So this, this training, was this birthing process was very powerful for me. It was about getting myself out of the way. Getting myself out of the way, but at the same time, being totally present, fully engaged, fully aware, mindfully absorbed in the midst of it, very concentrated and mindfully present in the midst of this process. Getting myself out of the way. And it was very, very intense and not easy, in the relative sense of the word, not easy. But it was really quite okay. And it was 
I have to say, incredibly interesting. (laughs) And it was really filled with a very profound wonderment. And it was the deepest, maybe I still speak of it, it was one of the deepest lessons of concentration and mindfulness, of presence and a very intuitive understanding of this process. And it stuck with me for 36 years. (laughs) This practice is about giving birth to ourself, we could say. The truth of ourself, which is the truth of life. We are that. We are not separate from that. So it takes a tremendous depth of concentrated, mindful presence in this process of the deepest healing, purification, freedom from suffering, and giving birth to the truth of ourself. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. And let's sit for just a moment. This is a tiny poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat, lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. 